welcome to Still at Large, a series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will examine an individual murder or a series of killings that, despite the best efforts of the various police forces involved, have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. The subject matter is not for young children or those with a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 4 Eve Stratford and Lynn Whedon 1975 The 18th of March 1975 was, according to reports, a snowy day in Lyndhurst Drive, Leighton, East 10 in London. 21-year-old Eve Stratford had been to her agents that morning and had visited a publicist in the early afternoon. At 3.58pm and reported as walking alone, Eve was seen near to her home. Eve was an ambitious and intelligent young woman. She spoke fluent German and Russian. A bunny girl at the Playboy Club in Mayfair, Eve had been pictured with many famous people. Sid James and Eric Morecambe among them. Her long blonde hair, dazzling smile, hourglass figure and clear focused eyes were a captivating combination. A well-liked and popular person, Eve had appeared in the March edition of Mayfair, a popular adult magazine at the time. Her nine-page layout had caused Eve to be suspended from the Playboy Club as the bunnies weren't allowed to model for the competitors. In 1972, Eve had moved from Aldershot with her boyfriend Tony Priest of the psychedelic rock band Vineyard. Vineyard had started out in the West Country as the Onyx and had achieved some minor success with a couple of singles, but had, unfortunately, failed to grasp the attention of a wider audience. Tony, at the time, was working as a forklift driver following the breakup of the band in early 1974. He and another former bandmate were both at work at around the time Eve returned home. At around 4.30pm, a neighbour is reported as having heard a male and female voice engaged in a normal conversation. Shortly afterwards, the same witness reports hearing a loud thud, sometimes reported as being like a chair falling over, and then silence. Roughly an hour later, at around 20 past 5, Tony returned home. The sight that greeted him was awful. The woman he loved was face down on the floor of their bedroom. Her hands were tied behind her back with a scarf. Around one ankle a single stocking had been tied. Eve Stratford's throat had been cut deeply and repeatedly, almost to the point of decapitation. The knife used in the assault had been taken from the scene. The police investigation swung into action soon afterwards, with regulars at the club being interviewed and subsequently eliminated. Forensic examination of Eve showed that shortly prior to her murder, a sexual act had taken place, but it could not be said with any certainty as to whether it had been consensual or an act of rape during the fatal assault, but the police thought it was likely connected to her death. Her recent appearance in Mayfair magazine was considered a possible motive for the fatal assault. The text that appeared with the images had been such as to be very suggestive, 
and Eve had been upset at the nature of those words. She had complained that she had not said any of the things that she was attributed as saying. As the police investigation continued, it became noticeable that the flat had not been broken into, nor had there been a struggle between Eve and her assailant. When Eve had been murdered, she had been wearing a short house coat over lingerie, lending credibility to a consensual sexual act having taken place. Investigations continued, interviews continued, eliminations continued. The snowy spring passed into a long hot summer and eventually turned to a languid autumn. The investigation had produced a number of leads, but they had all proved fruitless. As September started, the investigation was stalling. On Wednesday 3rd of September 1975, at around 20 past 11, 16-year-old Lynn Whedon was raped as she made her way home from a night out with friends in Hounslow. Lynn had her whole life ahead of her. She had been out celebrating her O-level results, like hundreds of thousands of people her age. Detectives believed that she had been followed along the A44 Great Western Road and then into an alley known as the Short Hedges. Here, her assailant hit Lynn hard in the back of the head. He then threw the unconscious girl over a fence surrounding an electricity substation. He then climbed in and raped her. Lynn was discovered the following morning by a caretaker. Although badly injured, unconscious and partially disrobed, Lynn was still alive. She was rushed to hospital and clung to life for another week before finally, sadly, succumbing to her injuries. The nature of her injuries was such that the police have variously described the blunt instrument used to inflict the fatal injury as either a hammer or a lead pipe. A second fatal attack on a young woman within a year was, unfortunately, not uncommon in the 1970s. The two cases differed quite dramatically. Eve had been assaulted in the afternoon, in her house, with a knife that had been taken from the scene. Lynn had been bludgeoned in an alley late in the evening and conspicuously raped. The weapon used to incapacitate her was also missing from the crime scene. The Metropolitan Police had two murder teams investigating two separate unsolved murders with sexual overtones. Neither had a suspect. Both cases went cold. The forensic scenes of crime officers Sockos, as they were then, had attended both scenes as and when they were discovered. Sockos have refined ways of dealing with a scene, after it had been secured by the attending officers from contamination by witnesses, or those hoping to disturb the crime scene for their own purposes, or even clumsy-footed officers. Even the way in which a crime scene is photographed is set down in a methodical procedural set of steps to ensure a full and proper record of the scene is taken. The primary reasons for taking photographs of a crime scene is to record the scene and the associated areas, to record the appearance of physical evidence as first encountered, to provide investigators with a photographic record of the scene to assist them with their investigations, and to present the crime scene at court for the edification of judges, juries and counsels alike. Once the police photographer had finished their job, then the Socos could really get to work. In the 1970s, however, the toolset that they had didn't extend much beyond fingerprints, shoe prints, fibre analysis, 
and being able to deduce what blood groups were present and if any of those people were secretors or non-secretors. That phrase pops up quite a lot in criminal cases from the past, but it's rarely explained. A non-secretor is someone who, through their own genetics, carries a gene which inhibits them from secreting their ABO blood type in their bodily fluids, semen, saliva, tears and so on. Over 80% of the population are secretors, so non-secretors are in a minority. It's quite a blunt tool in terms of forensic identification, even with the additional refinements of ABO, rhesus positive or negative subtypes, blood samples can often only provide a broadish range of suspects. It was, however, a very popular and useful tool at the time. A PhD candidate was three years into his doctoral studies in 1975, and it would be nine years after the tragic murders of Eve and Lynn that he would go on to formulate a method for identifying individuals using their DNA. The key breakthrough that Sir Alex Jeffries made was to profiling. He used repetitive sequences that are highly variable, called variable number tandem repeats, VNTRs. In particular, short tandem repeats, STRs. VNTR loci are very similar between closely related humans, but are so variable that unrelated individuals are extremely unlikely to have the same VNTRs. This was a revolutionary step in forensics and would, shortly after the discovery, be used to convict Colin Pitchfork of the murders of two young women in Leicestershire. 15-year-old Linda Mann was raped and strangled on the 21st of November 1983, and on the 31st of July 1986, another 15-year-old girl, Dawn Ashworth, was murdered in an identical fashion. The Forensic Science Service, working with Leicestershire Constabulary, undertook an investigation in which 5,000 local men were asked to volunteer blood or saliva samples. In total, it took six months, but no matches were found. In August 1987, Ian Kelly, one of Colin Pitchfork's colleagues at the bakery where he worked, revealed that whilst on a night out in a Leicester pub, he had been given £200 for giving a sample under the name of Colin Pitchfork. Pitchfork had given Kelly a story about a supposed friend he'd alibied by pretending to be him. His friend, Pitchfork said, had wanted to avoid being harassed by police because of a youthful conviction for burglary, and that he could not give blood under his own name because of that. A woman who overheard the conversation reported it to the police. On the 19th of September 1987, Pitchfork was arrested at his home in Haybarn Close, Littlethorpe, and his sample was found to match that of the killer. Pitchfork was later convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison. The sentence was later reduced by two years on appeal. The murders of Eve Stratford and Lynn Whedon would remain cold and as two separate investigations until 2004 when officers from the murder review group re-examined both cases. Detective Chief Inspector Andy Mortimer of the Homicide and Serious Crime Command said, Advances in forensic science mean that we are able to re-look at certain older cases with the very real possibility that some progress can be made that would not have been possible previously. As a result, we now have a DNA link between the murders of Eve and Lynn, who was just 16 at the time of her death. We believe the killer could have confided in someone over the years about what had happened or might even have bragged about the murders.
In 2007, the investigation into the murder of Eve Stratford was officially reopened. In the months that followed, 53 men known to have either been associated with the Playboy Club or in Eve's wider circle of male friends were to have their DNA sampled and compared against that found at the scene of her murder. Included in these were her boyfriend and the other male flatmates. All of them were conclusively exonerated by their DNA. There has been a large amount of speculation that Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, was responsible for these murders but there are a few problems with that theory. Eve's murder in March 1975 is quite unlike the vast majority of attacks Sutcliffe is known to have been responsible for. Whilst it is true that he was known to travel extensively because of his job as a lorry driver, Sutcliffe was not known in the circles that Eve moved in. Eve's attack had taken place in her home. Sutcliffe was known to operate outside generally, in alleys and back streets of towns, sometimes in red light zones, sometimes not, but generally outside. Eve's attacker, it seems, had been let into her flat and the conversation heard by a neighbour had been a normal exchange. There is also an element of doubt that the signs of sexual contact that the forensic teams found were from anything other than a consensual liaison. The brutality of the throat injuries the signs of restraint with her hands being tied behind her back are inconsistent with the known practices of Sutcliffe, except in one instance, the mutilation of Jean Jordan. Sutcliffe had returned to her body a week after killing her to recover a brand new £5 note from his wages that he'd given her. When he failed to find her handbag containing that note, he disemboweled her and tried to decapitate her. Other than that, Eve's murder doesn't fit his known M.O. A stronger argument could be made in the case of Lynn Whedon's murder. It fits the profile of the killings associated with Peter Sutcliffe, the blitz-like attack from behind, the sexual assault, the partial disrobing and an element of posing and mutilation following the attack. They're all fairly indicative of the modus operandi of Sutcliffe. Indeed they were so different that they had been separate investigations. But there was that unifying element, the matching traces of DNA found on both victims. It was not standard practice to take the DNA of suspects when they were first taken into custody until 1995, and as Sutcliffe had been arrested in 1981, his trial and detention in, at that point, Broadmoor Secure Hospital, he would have not been swabbed as a matter of course. However, Sutcliffe's profile had been added to the National Database at some point before 1999, during the investigation into the murder of 11-year-old Leslie Moleseed in October 1975. Leslie had been taken from near her home in Rochdale and had been savagely stabbed before being dumped by the side of the A672 on the Yorkshire-Lancashire border. For a brief period of time, this had been linked to the Yorkshire Ripper killings before the conviction of Stephen Kitsko in 1976. Four teenage girls claimed that Kitsko had indecently exposed himself to them the day before the murder. West Yorkshire police formed the view that Kitsko fitted their profile of Leslie Molseed's killer. Kitsko had never been in trouble with the law and had no social life beyond his mother and aunt. The police pursued evidence which might incriminate him and after three days of intensive questioning Kitsko confessed to the crime. He said, correctly, that he had never met Moleseed and therefore could not have murdered her. 
and he claimed he was with his aunt tending to his father's grave in Halifax at the time of the murder. When asked why he had confessed, Kitsko replied, I started to tell these lies and they seemed to please them and the pressure was off as far as I was concerned. I thought if I admitted what I did to the police, they would check out what I had said, find it untrue and then let me go. He was convicted on the 21st of July 1976 at Leeds Crown Court. He was handed a life sentence for the murder. From 1979 onwards, Kitsko developed schizophrenia whilst in prison and began to suffer from delusions. Delusions of innocence was the description of one forensic psychiatrist. In February 1991, Solicitor Campbell Malone, with the help of a private detective named Peter Jackson, finally urged the Home Office to reopen the case, which was then referred back to West Yorkshire Police. The job was assigned to Detective Superintendent Trevor Wilkinson, who immediately found several glaring errors. Medical evidence showed that Kitsko had male hypogonadism, which rendered him infertile. This was contradictory to the forensic evidence obtained at the time of the murder. Jackson found someone who confirmed that Kitsko had been seen with his aunt tending his father's grave on the day of the murder. They said they could not understand why they had not been called to give evidence at the trial. Also that month, the four girls involved in the court trial admitted that the evidence they had given which led to Kitsko's arrest and conviction was false, and that they had lied for a laugh and because at the time it was funny. In August 1991, Kitsko's case was referred to Kenneth Baker, who immediately passed them on to the Court of Appeal. On the 20th of December 1991, Kitsko was moved from Ashworth to Prestwich Hospital. Kitsko needed further psychiatric treatment and continued to remain in Prestwich Hospital, though he was allowed at home at weekends and occasionally during the week. He was finally allowed home in May 1992 three months after being cleared, but the years of incarceration had destroyed him. Stefan Kitsko died of a heart attack on December the 23rd, 1993, at home. Eighteen years and two days after he made the confession that helped lead to his wrongful conviction for murder. He was 41. What does this have to do with the case? Well, as part of the torturous inquiry to free Stefan Kitsko, DNA from imprisoned offenders was taken and compared against the samples found on Leslie Moleseed. Amongst them was Peter Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe did not match the sample, and neither did several other high-profile offenders including notorious child killer Robert Black. As part of the reopening of the cases, the DNA found at the scene of Eve's murder and on Lynn was compared to those on record, which included Peter Sutcliffe. The samples did not match there either. This evidence, more than anything else, showed that whoever had committed the murders was unknown to the police. In September 2007, DCI Andy Mortimer suggested that both murders were sexually motivated when they featured on the BBC Crime Watch programme. Well, it's by constantly reviewing cases, looking at the forensics, we've made that forensic link and we have DNA, that's the suspect's DNA, that links both of these uh, murders. Now, the important thing for everyone to appreciate is up until 1995, we weren't actually taking DNA from suspects, from people who went to prison, so it's quite possible that the suspect may have been arrested or gone to prison for other matters and we may not have his DNA. So if someone has that name, 
or suspicion, then we would encourage them to make the call and not assume that we already know. What we do know is that the killer had a link to the Leytonstone area in March 1975 and to the Hounslow area in September. And in particular to the Hounslow area, he would have been familiar with the alleyway called the Short Hedges. He would have been a white male, uh, aged between 17 and 30 at the time of the murders. Now, in both cases, murder weapons were removed from the scene. In the case of Eve, it was a knife, and in Lynn's murder, it was a blunt instrument similar to a piece of lead pipe. Well, we feel that the answer could come from uh, professionals, from psychiatrists, from support, from probation, and even prison officers. Back 40 years ago, someone may have made a uh, admissions to you or a disclosure that you didn't think was relevant at the time, but looking at all this information now, you may have a different view. We would ask you to make that call. And equally, a cellmate may have received a disclosure from a fellow criminal. On the 29th of August 2012, London's Evening Standard newspaper reported that police will continue investigating their deaths using the new forensic techniques that helped convict the killers of Stephen Lawrence. On the 40th anniversary of the murders, 25th of March 2015, police issued a fresh appeal including a £40,000 reward for information that brings their killer to justice. In September 2015, the police made a fresh appeal for new information on the murders. There have been substantial strides made recently with DNA phonotype profiling creating what is, essentially, an identical image of people from the way their genes are expressed. In time, I hope it will be used as a regular part of the forensic arsenal. Personally, I would argue that this case is a prime example where novel technologies could be used to great effect. Detective Chief Inspector Andy Mortimer of the Homicide and Serious Crime Command said in 2004 in relation to the killer, They have kept a dark secret for the last 30 years, and I'm sure they would have felt the need to share this burden with someone. We appeal to anyone who feels that they might have some information, however seemingly unimportant, to come forward. As of October 2016, the killer of Eve Stratford and Lynn Whedon is still at large. If you have any information about this crime, or any other case featured on Still at Large, please make contact with the relevant police force. Links will be provided on the pages for this podcast. Some music was by Duke Deck and online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large was written, produced and presented by Desmond J. Brambley and is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production.